Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Daniel Chemis as our guest today. The title of his speech is The Good City and the Good Citizen. For generations of Americans, the places we inhabit have been an essential part of who we are. Even as the population has become more mobile, our identities are still shaped by where we come from and where we live. For Daniel Chemis, region, environment, local culture, even landscape, directly influence our quality of life and the fabric of our communities. Daniel Chemis is an uncommon breed of philosopher politician. As former speaker and minority leader of the Montana House of Representatives and former mayor of Missoula, Montana, he has applied his ideas of civic virtue and community life in real life political settings. Mr. Chemis is widely regarded as one of the country's leading contemporary thinkers. He was awarded the Charles Frankel Prize by President Bill Clinton for his contributions to the humanities, along with such other notable writers as Rita Dove and Bill Moyers. The Yutney Reader recognized Mr. Chemis as one of America's 100 visionaries for his concepts of civility, citizenship, and civilization. Daniel Chemis is currently the director of the Center for the Rocky Mountain West at the University of Montana. He's the author of Community and the Politics of Place, which can be purchased in our foyer here. His new book, The Sovereign Land, A New Vision for Governing the West, will be published this spring by Island Press. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Chemis. Thank you, Pastor, for that very gracious introduction. I feel genuinely honored by it. Thanks also to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, and especially Sally Tellickson, for inviting and hosting me. And thanks to Minnesota Public Radio for broadcasting these forums. It really is an honor to be included in this series and I hope that I might be able to return some of that honor in the next few minutes. My topic is the good city and the good citizen. And I want to begin by saying how pleased I am to address that topic in this beautiful building in the heart of this great good city. And then immediately I recognize that I have to be careful not to get myself in trouble because I know that not everyone here and certainly not everyone listening on the radio is from Minneapolis. So I want to hasten to say that this is actually my second trip to the Twin Cities in a, in a week and that last week um, I was staying in beautiful downtown St. Paul where, uh, where uh, I went to a play at the Ordway Center and, and spent a wonderful afternoon at the conservatory at Como Park. Um, and so I, did, I had an opportunity to savor some of, uh, of the delights of that great good city. It occurs to me that, uh, that maybe the best way to handle this difficulty, because I'm not gonna be able to name every city in Minneapolis, in, in Minnesota, maybe the best way to go is just to play it safe and, uh, and talk for the rest of my time about the twins. Uh, I, I did catch the game last night. In fact, I, I was so interested in it that I did something that I never do, and that is to order room service because I didn't want to tear myself away from, uh, from that game. Um, and like many people here, um, I, uh, I was thrilled by Tory Hunter's base-clearing double, and uh, as well as that great double play um, in the bottom of the, of the second inning. Well, I could go on like that and try to win your hearts by, uh, by praising the twins, 
but sooner or later you would be bound to discover that, in fact, I grew up as and have never stopped being a Yankee fan. And uh, so probably my best bet is to get out of town before the weekend. Still, that uh, the, uh, the twins uh, are a way of bringing the small towns who are part of our audience into the discussion. And while the title of, uh, of my talk has to do with good cities, I want to make it clear that, that uh, small towns and mid-sized towns are as much a part of, uh, of what I'm talking about as the larger cities. And Minnesota, of course, is home not only to the two great cities side by side here, but also home to the most famous small town in America. The fact that it's an imaginary small town is, is um, no, real, no real bar to the fact that, uh, that it has become America's small town. And the fact that Lake Wobegon doesn't actually exist shouldn't stop us from recognizing that it could only have been created in, in all of its, its uh, captivating uh, character because there are, in fact, small towns all across this state that mean as much to the people who live in them as, the, as Lake Wobegon means to its residents. So I want to invite all of you, all of my listeners, to spend just a second thinking about your own town, your own city, and paying attention to it, putting yourself in relationship to it. So rather than simply think abstractly here for the rest of the time that we have together, I want to ask you to be pretty concrete and to think about the town or the city, the community, that you relate most closely to. And then I want to ask that you get even more particular than that, because what I'm going to talk with you about is not only towns and cities, but also citizens, that is, you. And so I want to ask that you not only call to mind your own town or your own city, but that you call yourself to mind. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I want to suggest that it is our tendency, a pretty inevitable tendency, when we attend something cerebral like a speech to inhabit our minds and, and sort of forget about our bodies. So I want to ask all of you, just for a second, sort of check out your body. Uh, remember that you are an embodied being. Um, so I want to ask you to become aware of your body. You can even move a little bit um, and, uh, just to, uh, to become aware of it. And as you do that, I'd invite you to be aware of it in all its particularity, um, including the ways in which it dissatisfies you, um, if there are any, uh, the ways in which it is not quite all that you might wish that it were. But it is, after all, your body. And that body bodies forth a very particular, very, excuse me, very unique individual. And I want to ask you to be aware of, uh, of that way in which your indivi individuality is bodied forth, and then take that bodily sense out into your city or town. So I want to ask that, uh, that you imagine yourself moving from that very real, real embodiment of yourself out into that very real embodiment of your city or town. And to feel its body as well, to call that to mind at least. And again, do it with, uh, with the infirmities, the ways in which the city or town is not all that it might be. But not allow yourself to be distracted by that, but bear in mind that there too 
that the way in which the community is embodied is a very particular embodiment of a very particular place, a place that, that has its own character, that could not be what it is, whether what it is is Minneapolis or St. Paul or St. Cloud or any other city or town. It could not be that particular city except by the way that, uh, that it has been embodied. So I want you to start by that awareness of, uh, of who you are right now in relationship to your city. And then I want to invite you to try to put yourself and your community within a historical framework. And at this point, when we start talking about history, I'm curious what's going through your minds about the history of your own place, about your history and relationship to your place. But I have to tell you that as soon as I invoke the, the, the idea of history, I'm always reminded of my favorite definition of history, which was given by Sir Winston Churchill. Churchill was someone who wrote a good deal of history. He spent a lot of time writing, and, and a lot of his, his writing was history. And of course, he was involved in making a lot of history as well. And against that background, he was asked one time by an acquaintance if he could give his definition of what history really was. And he thought about it for just a second, and then he said that as far as he could make out, that history was just one damn thing after another. During the, t the time that I spent in City Hall in Missoula, I found that to be a really, uh, a really welcome way of describing what life in the mayor's office was all about. Is, uh, you never knew what was going to happen, but you knew it would be something, that, uh, that there would be something new to deal with. And I'm sure that that's true of, uh, of your city or your community, that if it's not one thing, it's another. And that uh, there is usually something that you kind of wish that you didn't have to deal with, that there it is. Um, there's, a, there's always something new coming up, and it's often something very challenging, and often something that we wish weren't there. I suspect it's rather like that with, the, with our families as well. I know it is with mine, and I suspect it is with yours as well, and with your life and, and mine. That that's just kind of the way it is, that in a sense, it is just one damn thing after another. That's how it is in Lake Wobegon, certainly, and, uh, and I suspect it's how it is in, in every city and town uh, that any of, the, of my listeners are connected to. But there's also another way of thinking about cities and towns in a historical sense that doesn't set aside that rough, always with us reality of the kind of grittiness of, uh, of human life, but another way of thinking about the placing our, to our cities and towns and our citizenship in historical perspective that is maybe a little bit more inspiring. The word civilization. I want you to, to ask you to just dwell with, the, with that word for a while and to think about what, uh, what does it call to your mind? Generally, I think if we think of civilization, we either think of it just kind of vaguely as society in general, or if we think of a civilization, don't we usually think about some place that existed a long time ago and a long ways away? But how often would any of us think of a civilization as what we're a part of within our own city? And I, w I want to ask you to, th to think kind of hard about that. If, if, you were to, if you were just to have a conversation with someone about what civilization you're a part of, how likely would you be to describe your city or town as the civilization 
that, uh, that you were a part of. I think few of us would tend to do that, and it's partly just a function of how our language has developed, that we, we have kind of nationalized the idea of civilization, as we have with so much else. So that our tendency would be to think about American civilization or Western civilization, but not Minneapolis civilization, not St. Paul civilization. Yet the fact is that the word civilization comes from a Latin word that has everything to do with city. And in fact, without people having lived in cities and having, without people having formed their identities within cities, we wouldn't have the notion of, uh, of civilization at all. Well, another way that, uh, that I think that we think about civilization, if, if we think about great civilizations, is this, that we think about civilizations that are still remembered and that are well-remembered. Wouldn't, if, it, if we just think about what, uh, what are some of the strongest aspirations that we carry with us? What are, what are sort of some of the deepest, maybe most wistful aspirations that, uh, that we carry within us? I suspect that for most of us, that if we could, that we would like to be well-remembered. We would like to be part of something that has the capacity to be well-remembered. And why, after all, should we not have that aspiration? Isn't it really part of the, of the human condition to aspire for that? Well, let's stay for just a moment with this idea of, uh, of memory and of being well-remembered and move back backward in history slowly, first of all, to the 19th century to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where one of his famous lines, which of course was not to prove to be quite accurate, is that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Well, Lincoln was deeply aware of the, of the of the human need, the profound human need to be well-remembered, to be engaged in some enterprise which deserved to be well-remembered. And in crafting his speech, he drew consciously on a well-remembered speech given more than 2,000 years, almost 2,500 years earlier in Athens. And that was Pericles' funeral oration, an oration that Pericles, in effect, the mayor of Athens at that time, gave on the occasion of a, of a, uh, a, a community uh, funeral like the one that Lincoln presided at. In this case, a funeral for Athenian soldiers who had died in an early battle of the Peloponnesian Wars. In that speech, which itself was so well remembered that it was available for Lincoln to draw on, Pericles stood before the Athenian people. And he talked to them, of course, about the fallen soldiers. But the real thrust of his speech was the way that, uh, that he addressed the Athenian people themselves. He talked about, he talked in a way that, uh, that only a great orator could, about the greatness of their city, the city of of Pericles and of his audience. And then he talked about the citizens of that city. And while he was using a different language than the, than the one that, uh, that we draw the word citizen from, the implication was clear in Pericles' speech that a great city was not conceivable apart from citizens, and that conversely, citizens themselves, the citizens that he saw before him, were, the, were not conceivable either apart from their city. 
that is the very being, the personality, the character of the Athenians that he was addressing had been shaped by and formed by the city that they were a part of. And so Pericles did this wonderful job of weaving together for his listeners the way in which they were responsible. They and their ancestors were responsible for the greatness of Athens. He made it clear to them that whatever greatness they felt that there was in Athens was only there because their citizenship sustained that greatness. And conversely, he reminded them of how deeply important to their own lives the character and the substance of, uh, of Athens was. So once again, I want to invite you to sort of step back and put yourself in relationship to your own city or your own community and begin to ask yourself now, what is that relationship for you? What relationship do you feel there? To what extent is the meaning of your life, the goodness of, the, of your life, dependent upon the way in which your city has been shaped and, and sustained. How much of, a, of your life really does draw from the goodness of, a, of your city? And then turn it around and, and ask, and what about the other side of that? To what extent are you, as a citizen, a city dweller, a city being, to what extent do you lend yourself back to the, to the goodness of that city. Pericles ended his, uh, his speech by, by talking about how this connection between Athenians and, and Athens had, had grown so powerful that, uh, that uh, Athens had become what he called an education to all of Greece. Greece, Athens, of course, was the, the, the place from which, uh, in which democracy got its start. Um, and while Athenian democracy was much thi thinner, in a sense, than, uh, than we would ever put up with now, that is, the number of people who were excluded from citizenship, we would not put up with and should not. And yet, at the same time, there's something really remarkable about the fact that, the, that this way of being human could have taken root so deeply in this one city that it would never be forgotten, that it would be remembered and well remembered and, and carried forward throughout uh, human society and throughout human history. <clears throat> and someone once asked what it was about Athens that it made it possible for democracy to take such deep root there that it would become part of, uh, of uh, human history, an unforgettable part of it. And what one hypothesis would be that the, that the Athenians were all so much alike and agreed so readily with each other that it was easy for them uh, to, do, to do this thing called democracy. But in fact, anyone who studied Athenian history at all knows that the Athenians loved battling each other and that their, their, their disagreements were deep and enduring, uh, no less so than in any other community. But it is said that what made democracy work in Athens was that for some reason that all of these different interests that clashed so fiercely in Athens, that most of the people most of the time, in spite of those differences, cared more about Athens than they cared about winning. And that kind of caring about a community is really not fundamentally different than the caring that, uh, that good members of a family bring to their family. It's essentially the same thing. And finally, democracy comes down to a matter of caring. It doesn't come down really to a matter of voting or reading or writing letters to the editor. It comes down to a matter of caring and of active caring. So, When I think about, uh, about that sense of, uh, of democracy, of, uh, of that kind of human, vital, lived democracy that, uh, that makes you feel 
good about, uh, about being a human being and, a, and part of a democratic culture. I have to say that for someone who, who grew up in politics, who grew up loving to read about, the, about political history, that Minnesota it has been, for many of us, the kind of education that Heracles claimed that Athens was. We can go um, back in, in history and name one after another great leaders that, uh, that have come out of Minnesota. The, the, the sense of, uh, of uh, a people somehow learning lessons of pulling together and figuring out what needs to be done and doing it well is a, is a lesson that many of us have learned significantly from Minnesota. And so Minnesota has, in many ways, been that kind of education to others. And it can be that still. Yes, of course, I know that when I say that, that immediately people start thinking of all the reasons that you would not be proud, either of Minnesota or of a particular community within Minnesota. And there are always those reasons not to be proud. And it's entirely possible simply to dwell on all of those reasons to be kind of upset with and, uh, and sore about what has happened to, uh, to our communities. But I'm going to ask you to check your body again, okay? And recognize that here again, there are plenty of reasons to be sore with it, right? But do you want to give up on it? Well, probably not, right? It's what you have to embody, to body forth your, your very particular being. And the same is, is true of the communities that we're part of. Yes, there are plenty of, uh, of reasons uh, to, uh, to feel that they have let us down and that we have let them down, but my sense of it is that we live in a time when things are beginning to change, when the democratic spirit is beginning to come home again. For a very long time, for a lot of different reasons, we have tended to think that there was somebody else out there that was going to take care of us, that was going to make things all right. And then, of course, we spend most of our time complaining when they fail to do that. And that's sort of what our politics has, uh, has become, that we have these expectations that there ought to be somebody out there, there ought to be some structure, there ought to be some government that will make things okay. And then when it lets us down as it inevitably does, then we, uh, we uh, turn our anger against it. And there's still plenty of that going on. There's a lot of that still going on. But beneath the surface of that, we live in a time when I think increasingly we're seeing people starting to say there isn't anybody else, there's only us. And there isn't anywhere else, there's only here. And if we are going to be part of a civilization that is worthy to be well remembered, then we need to do it here, and we need to do it now. And it's within our range to do that. No, there are never enough resources. There are always plenty of reasons that it can't be done. But I'll invoke the twins one more time. What is it? The twins have now come from behind 11 times already this season to win another ball game. And isn't it the case that they're maybe the best team in baseball with the lowest salaries in baseball? So it can be done. That's just one fairly frivolous way of saying that it can be done. But there are a lot of non-frivolous ways of, uh, of saying that it can be done. Look around your own community and see what it is that your community has done in the last two or three years that you are greatly proud of. And think about what it took to make that happen. And I guarantee you that in every case, perhaps it took some good politics. And I think it often does take good politics to make good things happen but it also takes acts of citizenship.
every single citizen in any city or town or neighborhood has within their grasp the, to, the capacity to engage on any given day in some small act of healing of that neighborhood or of that city or town. Now those small acts of healing by themselves are not perhaps enough to make a great civilization. But those small acts of healing together with grand visions of what great good places might be, those two things combined, citizenship and politics, good politics, visionary politics, forward-thinking politics, politics that is about what the word politics is about, the polis, the city, the good city, that kind of citizenship and that kind of politics has the capacity to create places and communities that would in fact deserve to be well remembered. At the very end of his speech, Pericles talked about the Athenian people. He, talked, he asked them to think of themselves standing within the city of, uh, of Athens, surrounded by all the beauty that they had created within that city. And I'd ask you to think of yourself standing within your favorite part of, a, of your community, surrounded by that in the, the community which sustains you. And listen then as Pericles says that these people in this place had become what he called a people of remarkable grace. Well, grace is not a word that we would very often hear from a political leader, not in that sense. But grace is something that is available to us if we really put ourselves in relationship to the communities that mean so much to us. So I invite you, in closing, to feel how you, as a citizen, and your city might lend grace to one another. And I want to thank you for gracing me with your very gracious hospitality. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan Daniel Chemis. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Daniel Chemis, who has just spoken on the good city and the good citizen. While the ushers in our sanctuary collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank our co-sponsor, the Osilis Foundation. I also want to acknowledge the McKnight and Star Tribune Foundations for their ongoing sponsorship of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Mr. Chemis, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. The first question is from a parent of three school-age children who is desirous of raising them and raising them up to be good citizens and asks what comments you might have to such a parent given the, the state of public education and the state of our cities today for children. I think one of the, the ways that our democracy has tended to let itself down has to do with, the, with our relationship to children. And um, I think it's something that, uh, that could be fairly easily corrected, but, uh, but it would take a pretty substantial change in the, in the way that we go about things. So I'm going to talk, first of all, sort of about the society in general, and then maybe I'll get around to this more specific question of, of children within a family. Well, maybe I'll start with children within a family. I, uh, it, it, it seems to me that, uh, that um, families are, uh, are just absolutely fundamental to the, uh, to the proper operation of a, of a democracy in so many different ways. For one thing, it's only within a family and then within a neighborhood and within a community, that people can learn the, the, the civic virtues, especially virtues of civility, of trust, of honesty, and so on, that are fundamental to a democracy. So there is just that way in which 
treating children as, a, as part of, of the polity of the, of the family is, is tremendously important in their civic education. But beyond that, it seems to me that, uh, that in our society that we have a very strange relationship to children. If, it, if you talk to children, especially teenagers, about their relationship to, the, to their city, very often what you hear is that, um, that the city doesn't seem to like them, that, uh, that uh, in effect they're always being moved from one place to another, that there, there, there is no real engagement of the city with its children. Certainly that the city never comes and asks the children, well, what do you need or what do you want? And, uh, and so we, do, we have this kind of at best hands off, at, the, at worst kind of, of uh, um, repulsing attitude toward children. And we do that to them for a very long time. And then all at once when, when they're 18, we say, now you're supposed to be citizens. And, uh, and they haven't had any engagement. They haven't had any real chance to, uh, to shape their city. And so I don't think it's very surprising that, uh, that they don't respond very well and that we have terribly low voter turnout among, uh, among children and, uh, and so on, among, among young adults. Um, so I think we do a bad job in that regard. I'm glad that there's a, a uh, listener who, or a member of the audience who sees the importance of, a, of that form of building citizenship. Thank you. Tell us which city you would like to live in now with, if, were there, with no financial or personal constraints of any kind, where would you choose to live? Uh, I do live there. <laughs> I, sus <laughs> I suspected you might say that, but let me throw this one at you. Is there any city in history that you would like to have lived in or been involved in? Oh, well, I suppose I've already made that clear. I mean, if, if, I, if I could have, uh, if, if I could spend a year in, in um, ancient Athens, I'm sure that, uh, that I would welcome that. Um, but it's certainly not the only one. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd love to be in, uh, in late 15th century Florence as well. I'd go for 21st century Florence. From reading your book on communities, I know that you counsel against communities and cities being divided or polarized along suburban urban lines. How can we practically avoid this when the choices and decisions we make almost inevitably or automatically pit people against each other? Well, um, this is one place, of course, where, the, where um, Minnesota has been in education to the rest of the country, um, not least of all through the efforts of, uh, of Myron Orfield, who, is, uh, who has uh, done so much good work on this whole question of the relationship between cities and, uh, and suburbs. Um, my own feeling about that is that, uh, that especially in this age of globalization, where, where the global um, economy has become so fiercely competitive that it is not going to work any longer for communities to be divided between suburbs and, and central cities. Only metropolitan areas that have their act together, that are really able to operate as a larger community, are going to be able to succeed in, in that global marketplace. Uh, and, it, and so I think the pressure is really going to be on to build uh, that sense of, a, of metropolitan community, and even beyond that, a sense of community between the metropolis and, and the, the, the smaller towns and, and rural communities that surround the metropolis. Um, but, it, it, but in order to move there, I think what we need to recognize is it's not an either-or proposition. It's entirely possible for people to have a strong sense of identity with their own neighborhood, with their own suburb or, or whatever, and at the same time be part of, uh, of that larger community. I think one of the challenges of citizenship now is, uh, is to, to do both of those things at once, to be a good citizen of your smaller community and a good citizen of the metropolitan community that you might be a part of as well question that follows up on that in terms of boundaries of community. 
There's a conflict between being involved in one's community and focusing exclusively on the immediate surroundings. What are the boundaries of community? Is there a community of the nation or of the world, a global community? Well, first of all, just carrying forward the theme that I was talking about, I do believe that, uh, that uh, people who, who want to think seriously and effectively about citizenship now need to realize that, uh, that global citizenship is part of, uh, of what we need to be about. We, do, we really do, I believe, need to be developing a capacity to be global citizens and, uh, and to act as, uh, as global citizens. My own view of things is that, uh, that we have, over the last hundred years or so, tended to focus so much of, uh, of what we think of as citizenship at the national level, so that, uh, so that increasingly we came to the place where if you asked people just to think about themselves as citizens, that they would kind of automatically think of themselves as Americans. And while I think that there is still a place for that, my sense of it is that, uh, that again, in the, in the context of globalization, that nationhood is becoming less important, that what we're going to be called on is, uh, is to be citizens at, uh, at many different levels, including the continental level. We're going to have to be citizens of North America to a greater extent maybe than, uh, than citizens of America itself. Uh, so my guess is that we're going to see people beginning to withdraw somewhat their national citizenship, not totally by any means, but, uh, but to begin to be aware of themselves more as citizens of these other entities from the neighborhood up to the, to the earth itself. This question uh, pursues the matter of indigenous nations within our nation. Can you comment on a vision to uh, how to heal the relationships between, say, Minnesota as a state or Montana as a state or the federal government and sovereign indigenous nations while maintaining environmental human rights values and concern? From, uh, from my perspective now as the, uh, the uh, director of the Center for the American West, or the, the Rocky Mountain West, where, to, where um, we focus on issues that are, to, that are particular to the West, one of the issues that we focus on um, is the status of, uh, of tribes, because there are so many uh, tribes that, uh, that uh, have, uh, have, are located in the West, but of course not in the West alone. I think one of the, uh, uh, one of the most helpful uh, kind of strands of, uh, of history in, in the West and in this part of the country as well is the fact that the tribes have insisted on maintaining a sense of, uh, of their own sovereignty and of their own integrity. Uh, I think that, the, that that is a great strength and, be, and can become a, a, a source of strength to the communities outside of and, uh, and surrounding those tribes. Uh, but, but one thing that, uh, that has troubled me is that, well, I think that that many communities of various sizes, uh, that one of the ways that, uh, that they have, uh, have kind of taken hold of themselves is to develop images and, uh, and visions of what they want to become. That it seems to me that it has become, it has been very difficult for, uh, for us as a society to have a clear vision of what, how things might be between the, uh, the indigenous tribes and, uh, and the rest of us. How might we live together? What would the vision be of, uh, of how we would be well together? And I'm just not aware of, uh, of uh, any good work that's been done to develop that vision. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, that I think we need to really put some energy in. In your books, you speak of a politics of inhabitation or a politics of place and remind your readers of how important it is where you are formed as you grow up, the place in which you were raised. A more personal question now. How did Montana influence you and define you as a politician or as a philosopher or as a human being? Well, First of all, I grew up on a, on a small farm in eastern Montana, uh, 
um, out on the plains of, uh, of eastern Montana. And um, that experience of, uh, of growing up on a small, isolated farm um, in very hard country, uh, where, to, where it was very hard to, uh, to make a living or stay on the land, and many, many families were not able to stay on the land. That experience uh, taught me something about cooperation among neighbors that, uh, that has always been important to me. Uh, and it, when I wrote Community and the Politics of Place, I sort of went back to that experience, and I finally realized that, uh, that while I had carried forward sort of a, a romantic notion of what that neighborliness was all about, that it was these people who just really enjoyed being together and working together and so on, when I started thinking about it, I realized no, the fact of the matter is, several of us couldn't stand each other. Uh, and, uh, and, but, the, but we had no choice but to cooperate with each other. We had no choice but to somehow lay aside our differences enough to do things together because we couldn't make it on our own. Uh, and so uh, that experience, I think, uh, really got deep into my blood and, and has carried forward into all of my politics ever since. You've spoken today of the unique contribution of Minnesota politics in the national political fabric. What kind of contribution is arising from the political West, your part of the country? Well, along the lines that, uh, that I just spoke about, that is the, uh, the notion of, uh, of people working together. Um, the, the interior West has, uh, has always been a very, very contentious place. And I know every place is, is contentious. but, uh, but in the West in particular, because uh, so much of the interior West is owned by the national government, there has been a long tradition of, uh, of really deep political divisiveness over issues of, uh, of the public lands, and there still is. But uh, what has happened over the last 10 years or so is that um, increasingly within watersheds and, uh, and within communities next to those public lands, that rather than uh, both sides beating up on the federal government about doing a bad job of managing the lands, which we have done for a very long time, that increasingly now people are saying, in effect, well, the, maybe the federal government just can't do a good job of managing these lands. And so people are starting to get together where you have environmentalists and ranchers and loggers sitting down and figuring, well, how will we manage this particular watershed? What could we do with, the, with this, uh, this particular ecosystem that would make it work for everybody? So there has been a tremendously strong movement of, uh, of this uh, collaborative problem solving and decision making that has just gained strength uh, year after year in the West. Now it exists in other places as well, but it has a particular potency to it in the West. And I'll, uh, I'll just take this opportunity maybe to to make a pitch to people who, who are not part of, uh, of that scene. One of the struggles that we have in the West, because so much of the land is, is publicly owned, is that what that means is that it's owned by everybody in the country. So everybody, in, theoretically at least, has an equal say about what happens there. And what that often feels like to people who live in those communities is that Everybody else gets to run their place, but everybody gets to run the West. And, and um, so, to, so there's a sense of, uh, of disempowerment. One of the ways that's being addressed now is, is by Westerners saying, how about if you just give us a chance to show you what we could do if we had more control over some of these places? Now, not all of them. We don't ask that you let us run Yellowstone National Park. but maybe just give us a forest or two and let us see how we would do with, it, with running it. And we'll do a good job for all of you. And if we don't do a good job, you can take it back again. Uh, but I'd, I'd just like people to be open to the possibility that Westerners might be able to live up to that. Sometimes what I, do, what I say is, now do, people are always saying, look, somebody in New York City has as much right to say what happens on the Bitterroot National Forest as somebody living in Hamilton. Well, yes. But what if we let the whole country run New York City? You know, how, uh, how well would New York City, if, if all of us sort of gathered around and said, oh no, I think you ought to do it this way, I think you ought to do it that way. 
it, it sort of gets back to, uh, to what I was saying before. The fact is that communities work because people in those communities make them work. Question about the language you used in your presentation today, the body city language, and that exercise you in invited us into. It's easy to focus on the physical factors. How do we plumb the soul of each, of the body or of the city? Well, each, each of us, of course, know how, uh, how we relate to, to that soulful or spiritual side of, uh, of ourselves or that dimension of ourselves. What's interesting to me is that, um, in my experience, you never get very far into talking with people seriously about what their community means to them without encountering spiritual language. The people can never, never really describe what a place means to them or what a community means to them without eventually having recourse to some kind of spiritual language. And it's challenging because our, in general, our spiritual language comes up out of our, to our relationship to church or to, or to, uh, to a, a faith-based relationship. And so we have kind of particular ways of expressing spirituality. And then trying to express spiritual, the spiritual dimension of community without doing it in a sectarian way, in a way that leaves somebody out because the language was wrong, is a great challenge. But it's one that I think it's worth pushing ourselves to because you just can't finally describe what community means without talking about the spirit and the soul of a place. Thank you, Mr. Chemis. Daniel Chemis spoke to us today at the Westminster Town Hall Forum on the good city and the good citizen. The next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be held Thursday, May 17th. Our speaker will be Millard Fuller, founder of Habitat for Humanity. The title of his speech will be Excitement is Building. I invite you to join us on Thursday, May 17th here at Westminster Church for the next Town Hall Forum. See you then. Thank you.